take a walk with us down memory lane, or maybe help spark a conversation with a loved one about the way farms used to sound. With your Amazon device or Alexa app, say, Alexa, play country farm sounds and escape to a mid-1900s farm where they will take a walk during morning chores. Hey, everybody, I'm Paul Yeager. This is the MTOM Show podcast, a production of Iowa PBS and the Market to Market TV show. We cover everything on Market to Market when it comes to what's in the field, what's on the farm, what's going in, what's coming out, what's from above, energy, renewable energy, what to do with something when it's no longer providing value, what's the recycle, what's the upcycle, wind turbines, those blades are big. Where do they go? You've seen the pictures. They've ended up in landfills or somewhere else that maybe the industry doesn't want to highlight and opponents certainly do want to let everyone know. But there is a company based in Ohio that is taking the wind turbine blade and doing some fascinating things with it. Brian Donahue is with a company called Canvas and they're based out of, in the area of Cleveland, Ohio. They have a facility there that is making some fascinating things with wind turbines. I'm talking park benches, tables, and a whole lot more. The opportunities, as we find out in this installment, are almost endless. And the story behind the company is right now on the MTOM Show podcast. Brian, a little admission. There's no Sean, Will, or Jason Bateman anywhere on this. So I hope you realize this isn't smartless. I do. I do. But I'm happy to be here on Market to Market. (laughs) You know, this is a story that we have. The wind energy. Let's talk about Iowa. I mean, that has become one of the centers of wind turbines. And now there's the discussion of what to do with them. We'll get to that in a minute. I want to learn more a little bit about you. You're sitting in Ohio. Is that correct? Yes. We're headquartered in a town called Rocky River, just east of Cleveland. Uh, So so now we're... Well, now we're going to, you're going to, you're not from Cleveland Heights though? Nope, I'm not. Rocky River. No, you're not a Kelsey brother? <laughs> nope. Uh, I would be doing pretty well if I was. Are you from Ohio? I'm originally from the East Coast, Northern New Jersey, but I've been in this area for about 23 years. So, New Jersey City or one of those rare New Jersey farm people? No, very close to the city, about 15 minutes outside of Manhattan, a little north of Newark, a little uh, west of Jersey City. Yeah. So what was your background there? Uh, what what was interesting to Brian as a student? Uh, as a student, accounting and finance, which I think I still use to this day. But uh, coming out of coming out of school, I moved back home for a while and and traded commodities on the New York Board of Trade and then moved to Ohio where there is no board of trade and, and found other ways to, to, to scratch that itch, I guess, if you will. Well, where you're at is kind of like halfway between Chicago and New York. I it mean, is. So see, you just couldn't decide. Did you want to go <laughs> grain and grain or did you want to go back to oil there in New York? That's right. That's right. What's your best trading story? Um, it was wild. I mean, I, I was down there in, in the, late 90s, early 2000s, before it was all computerized and we still had handheld pads and and you'd flip your cards in every half hour. And it sounds so old fashioned now, but it was a blast. And as a young clerk, um, I mean, that's where you start. You clerk and they had just opened the new uh, New York Mercantile Exchange uh, right there uh, off of Wall Street. 
And I was about a week into my job and got put on the oil pit, which was a terrifying, terrifying experience. Um, the president of the company and one of our best traders traded oil, and I'm a weekend clerking for them. Um, but I ended up, because they had just opened the building, on the cover of the New York Times when they ran a story. And all the other clerks who had been there for a year or two were a, a little envious that somehow I ended up on the front page of the Times and not them. It just pays to be in the right place at the right time and maybe That's just correct. have the right look that day. <laughs> That's correct. Do you have one of those? I mean, we have a couple of people that come on the show that have worked and they have stories of uh, my cards inaccurate because I transposed something. Did you ever, ever, ever have one of those moments? The worst moment I had in that regard, um, there are all hand signals, right? And that's how you communicate from across the room. And on your forehead represents hundreds and on your chin represents tens. So at the end of the day in oil, I got an order to sell 800 futures contracts from our options trader. I sold 80 because I mixed up the signal. So at the end of the day, he said, I'm long 720 futures. And I went home 22 years old. I'm like, I'm going to get fired tomorrow. Like, there's no end. Woke up, checked the overseas market, and the market had, uh, had skyrocketed. So in all, now I never got a bonus out of it. I still made the mistake, but he did very well off that that mistake. <laughs> Maybe he named his boat after you. He may have. He may have. The Brian. <laughs> <laughs> so, so commodity trading, and it's interesting that you say crude oil and that mm -hmm. that was what you were in. And so now in a, in a recycling type business, uh, that's an alternative to energy. So is energy as a whole of interest to you? You know, it. I, I guess you'd have to think so. I, I don't think I ever charted it out that way, but something has always brought me back to that sector. And, and in between now and, and where we're at with renewables, um, I did a lot of work with oil and gas companies on their surplus assets and distressed assets. And that's really kind of what led me into, into the wind energy is a lot of those companies are also branching out into renewables. And that's how we got turned on to this in the first place. So, so yeah, where were you in the beginning of this company? Um, our, our founding group um, at Canvas, um, there's three of them. And they were all working for another company that I was also working for. And that company was really a broker. And, and so they, like I said, they would take surplus and distressed assets. And at the time, we had focused a lot in the wind energy because the production tax credits were coming into play and there was a lot of repowering going on, old equipment coming down and new going up. But when you take them down, you have metal, you have the fluids, the oils and the hydraulics, and you have the fiberglass, the blades. And, and metal and oil, they've been recycled for, for years and years and years. It's, it's not hard. You pick up a heavy object, you put it on a truck, and it goes off to the scrap mill. Um, oil's the same way. There's 150 companies out there that can repurpose it. But the big problem for the industry was the fiberglass blades. And so we always thought there was a better way to handle them than certainly better than landfill and then better than some of the other options that have come up. Um, so we had a team and, and actually led by one of the founders of Canvas who was looking at different alternatives of how to handle the blades. And Parker is the one who came up with the idea of cutting them into fillets and, and making products. And it, it really blew our mind. 
And so he left that company and, and founded Canvas. And, and in the meantime, found one of his college roommates who had graduated with a design or a degree in architecture. So he came on board and did all our design. And then Parker very wisely uh, hired his older sister who runs all the infrastructure and, and is the senior VP of strategic growth. So once they founded it, they really tapped into people we had known uh, with expertise in sales, marketing, manufacturing, all the things that were needed for Canvas. And that's how I came over as, as both an employee, but as also an advisor role for, for them as we get this business up and running. So family and friends of sorts. So yeah. that makes its own challenge. We could do a whole nother discussion <laughs> on that one. Uh, yep, but partnering should. on something that's new. Sad keep which kept you up more at night when you were wrong side of a trade <laughs> or uh, going, oh, I don't know if anybody's going to buy these things. Both in different ways. Um, you know, we have a saying around here that, that we connect the dots to solve problems and create opportunity. So our whole group is really wired to look at a challenge like fiberglass. And, and I think there's two types of people in the world. I, I believe those that the unknown is very, very scary and they like a very comfortable not having too much unknown in their life. Um, we're on the other side of the coin. And, and I think it drives loved ones, spouses, especially crazy that the unknown is incredibly exciting to us and you never know what's behind that door. So we kind of run headlong into it. And there were a lot of hours and, and a lot of sleepless nights because no one's ever done it before. What we're doing has been done here and there on a small scale and people have had intention. They've built a bridge out of blades or a bike rack, but we knew we needed to solve the problem on scale because of the number of the blades coming down. So there was no blueprint. We couldn't Google it. There, there weren't consultants we could bring in. So we had to sit around a big table and sometimes have what we call spirited discussions, sometimes collaborate a little more, but we all knew it was in a great, a great purpose behind what we were doing. Was that table made of recycled blade? No, sorry, that was too easy. But it, it how do you not? So, okay, so how old of a company are we talking here? Canvas really has been around for about three years. Um, okay. so, since Parker split off and decided to really take it um, by the reins, it's been about three years. He incorporated it in, I think, April of 2022. So it, it's been officially a corporation for almost two years now, but but he's been working on it for about three. And and where is Parker from? I mean, did he see all these blades and go, I mean, you, you mentioned kind of the background about, you know, yeah. what to recycle, but I mean, you can't, you, not everybody looks at a blade the same. They they don't. And, and what he did when he worked at Rivercap, the former company where he came from, he had been given the task of, hey, we're working with a lot of these wind companies, we're handling the byproducts. What else can we do with blades? So that was really his project. And he spent a lot of time on it. And historically, everyone that looks at blades besides landfill looks to destroy the blade. And how can we get it into smaller pieces and then do something with it? Whether it be using it as fuel in a cement kiln, whether it be trying to use it as aggregate in concrete, how can we crush that blade and not use it for what it is? And he really looked at it differently and, and said, how can we use the strength of that blade and the durability of that blade and use less energy to convert it into something that has a useful purpose? And, and that's really where it spawned from is I, I don't 
I, I don't know how he exactly came up with it, but I remember the day he showed it to us and said, if we cut these like this, we can put them like this and make furniture out of them. And, and we, we really stopped looking at alternative solutions. We, we, we really believed that was the way to go. I want to go back to the aggregate part of what you just yeah. said. So do you do that aggregate side? We have some outlets that we still use on the cement side and the aggregate side because we're always going to have damaged blades that can't be upside right. in the products or, you know, we have to build the demand, which we've done very successfully so far, but there are probably going to be more blades than we can turn into product. So we want to be able to handle everything still responsibly upcycle as much as humanly possible but then also have responsible outlets to recycle the material that can't be turned into product. So how many companies are doing that side of aggregate that you think are in the marketplace that could Google each other and figure out how to improve it? I mean, is that a dozen companies that are doing that in the U.S. right now or globally? You know, there, there's a lot of people trying different things. The, the most tried and true are the cement kilns. And, and there's probably... Gosh, I think it's anywhere from 60 to 80 in the U.S. And not all of them can use fiberglass as a fuel. I think they're trying to get there as a whole. The biggest problem with any of these solutions, whether it be aggregate uh, pyrolysis, where they try and break the material back down into oil and fiber, or um, the cement kilns, is that middle stop where you have to grind it. You've got material that's fiberglass, resin, metal, balsa wood, foam. I mean, sometimes when you cut open these blades, it's it's amazing. And we've seen so many of them and it, it's it's a little surprise every time they're they're not the same. So grinding it is wildly abusive on equipment um, and, and it really eats up material. Um, we've worked with probably a dozen grinding companies that they've got the newest and latest grinder and they can grind everything we've got and we ship them half a blade and they grind it and they say, no, thank you. We're, we're not really interested anymore. Uh, seven of them just ghosted us. They never even called us back. So it's, it's tough to find the right equipment and, and put the commitment behind it to do it. The other side of it is no matter what grinder you have, the root end where that blade attaches to the hub is five or six inch thick fiberglass. So you're not grinding it. Our products love the root end. We make full circular products and then we use the, the half of it to make our crescent lines and, and other benches out of that root end. So we have companies that are actually grinding material that look to us just to take the roots because they have no other outlet for them. Someone else's trouble yep. is your success. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. So it sounds like you're the, let's go back to agriculture for a minute. It sounds like you're in the early days of processing the pig. You process everything but the squeal. That's right. That's right. We try to, um, you know, there, there's not much in there. There, there's the metal studs where it attaches to the hub. That's easy. You pull them out and it's scrap metal. And then we have a saw in our facility. So to jump back, you know, they come down, they're 140 to 200 feet long at, at this point, the ones coming down. So we have contractors that, that cut them cross section them we call it in the field in the thirds or quarters, depending on the size of the blade. Otherwise the freight would kill us. So we're able to ship on standard trailers. Then we bring our raw material in. It's a 40-foot section of blade loaded on a indexing card, it's called, and it feeds a rope saw that's diamond-encrusted and cuts those fillets as it goes forward and pushes the blade forward. So we then have the basis for our products. You just said fillet. Is that what I thought I heard you say? 
Yeah, we look at the whole section as like a tenderloin and you just cut yeah. the plays off of it. It's the easiest way. It makes people really hungry when they hear it, but it's the easiest way to describe it. Guilty. And... <laughs> It, but it it totally again it, it then back to the the hog analogy. Yep. It really is carving like it is like the the processing industry. Okay. Yep. You mentioned sourcing on trucks. Where are these blades coming from? They come from all over really. Um we have a a a pretty decent inventory here in Ohio from a project we finished in Iowa last year um that we were able to bring Mid-Americans blades here and start turning them into products so we're going through those. We've gotten blades from Texas, from Oregon, from Wyoming. Um, it, it really just depends on on where the blades are at. And you want to try and be geographically um, closer, you know, to minimize the freight. So everyone said, well, if you want to be in wind, why are you setting up a shop in, in, in Cleveland, Ohio? Well, I mean, number one, it's where we're from and we want to be close to the first one. But in a fortunate manner, there are a lot of projects coming up that are in New York State and Pennsylvania and Indiana and even Ohio. So this geographically isn't so bad in order to get the blades here. We also leverage out there inventory depots, which are, are basically storage yards that we have where we can maintain inventory, our raw stock, before we bring it into a processing facility to turn into products. So like a, I, I would call it like a storage facility somewhere in yep. another state. And then you can, so you like fill the warehouse before you bring them. Pretty much. It's, it's open air. So it's, it's like an oil and gas company with a pipe yard that they store all their yeah. pipe and equipment yep. that they're waiting for future projects on. It's just our raw material. And when you say there's projects coming online in New York, do you mean projects that are finished with their blades or starting their blades, or you mean like there's a park and they're going to need a bunch of furniture for that park. So when I say the projects in New York, they're old turbines that are coming down and having new ones replaced. So they will have blades that need to be handled that it's the closest place to bring them would be to Cleveland, Ohio. And then you're in a geographic location of mid east united states maybe mm -hmm. not midwest but with west you you really are almost connecting a source to an end location with population that you have to the east of you yeah 100% this is a pretty decent distribution point um you know there's an argument we're on the west side of cleveland so we consider ourselves midwesterners but the 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 argument can be made um there was a debate on that recently yes absolutely there's a but it's, it's a pretty good central location. I mean, even bringing the blades, we're bringing more blades from Iowa now on a project we're working on. It's not that bad from Iowa. And then to get them back out across the country um, with our finished product, we can we ship in full truckloads. So we ship six to 10 products on a truckload at a time. So we maximize the freight there as well on the outbound. Are you at the same site as the processing facility with your office? No, we have a headquarters in Rocky River, and then the uh, we have a 110,000-square-foot manufacturing facility. It's about 20 minutes west of us in a town called Avon, Ohio. Give me a sense of how big 110,000 square feet is, like how many blades are fitting in here at one time. Um, well, it's all equipment and manufacturing inside. Um, we, we have a, a I think, 15-acre yard. Uh, a little further south of that facility where we're storing about 420 blades right now that we're, we're processing. Um, 110,000 square feet. I'm never really good at this. I, That's I why I ask you, neither am I. Um, I mean, it's it's a large 
box warehouse. Um, and it was perfect for us because it had high ceilings. We need a lot of open space. You're, you're moving around, first of all, 40 foot sections. Then you're moving around fillets and, and even the smaller ones, they, they weigh two to 300 pounds. So once you get them done, a lot of the automation we have is done in that saw. And then it's really our craftsmen that take over and they're smoothing the edges. They're sealing any damage that's been done. They get hit by hail in the air. Sometimes when they come down, they get dragged across a gravel pad. So we fix that up. The edges are very important to us um, because you don't want someone sitting down and walking away with glass splinters. So we've put a lot of R&D into the best way to seal that. And we're really happy with the way the products are going out in that regard. 10,000 square feet of it, um, which I guess is what, a thousand by a thousand. I don't know. I'm going to embarrass myself here on the math, but um, as a former trader, um, but we created what we call a gallery. And the gallery has different areas and it's full of our products. So we've had a lot of visitors from the wind industry and, and some of the highest levels of the OEMs and, and some of the wind farm owners come out. And it's great for them to see the manufacturing side. So they know it can be done at scale, but then they can't really see it in space. So we created this gallery. So when they walk in, they understand what our products look like out there in a park and on a city street. We've created a whole experience for them when they come visit. Let's talk about the products then that you have, because yeah. I've seen you, you kind of mentioned I joked about a table earlier, um, benches. What are the main like top five uses? And then we can then give me some of those crazy things that sure. you've been trying. So we have we have nine products in our lineup right now, um, and they are all benches except for a picnic table that we make that is sold as a set with two benches. Um, it's really unlike any picnic table you've ever seen because it's got the crescent of a wind turbine blade underneath it um, and a composite lumber top or a board we use that's made out of recycled plastic pulled from the ocean, the carpet industry. But a majority of them are benches and they are benches unlike anything you've ever seen. They're, they're made with a half moon crescent of the root or it's a full circle of the root end and the bolt hole still exposed with a bench or a swing inside of it that people can sit in. The covered part of it is great because if you're down south, it will protect you from the sun. If you're in Cleveland, it's not normally as sunny as it is today. You could be protected from a light drizzle and still reading your book and enjoying looking at the uh, at looking at the scenery from the bench. So, yeah, most of what we do are benches except for that table. And are these benches, I saw on the website, you have different cities that have bought some of your product and, and put in parks or things. Is it is that who your big client is, or are we already to the big box store side of things? No, so they belong in public spaces. The The mission of Canvas is to create an ecosystem for all to amplify public spaces, because every community has space. Some of it is really well done and well-maintained, and our products just go in there and add to that. Some of it is a patch of grass, and they say, well, let's make a pocket park and use these benches. So we're targeting the communities because they have public spaces. They've got parks, they've got schools and just open areas they can put these. But we then work two different ways to get our products into the communities because municipalities are not always flush with budget. Um, a lot of towns, you know, they, they don't have room all the time to, to buy amenities like benches. So we look at two different ways. We have something what we call a legacy bench program. And so it's you walk around a city and see a memorial bench and it's got a little plaque or it's carved in, you know, 
in, in memory of Grandma Helen. Our legacy bench not only can be used to honor someone who's no longer with us, but it can be honored to, used to honor the legacy of someone who's still in the community. For example, we have a city in California we shipped benches to, and outside their VFW, they made the we each product has a plaque that links to a digital platform, and they get to tell a story. The story they told was about a veteran from that community who went missing in action in Vietnam, and his brother was actually there at the dedication and was able to be a part of that. So the Legacy Bench Program is wonderful for a way for citizens to be able to put these products out in their community and tell a story about their family. The other is what we call Sponsor a Space. We work with local businesses, we work with national brands, large foundations and, and organizations to go ahead and make an impact in the communities where they operate. So every business that's in a community has a community connection. A lot of them like to give back and, and be a good steward and a good member of the community. And a lot of them also have a material connection. Our, our friends in, and partners in the wind industry, we've helped solve a problem that they've had and a narrative that's not been great for the industry so they look to give back to communities and, and they're starting to buy our products. And then basically what we call sponsor or donate them to a community. And then local businesses will do the same. They'll buy a couple of benches. And again, that digital platform, not talking about Grandma Helen on this case, but talking about the business, contains a series of links to their website. So we've worked with restaurants that have links to their menus, their reservations, their merchandise, you know, all that kind of stuff. They can change it 10 times a day. They can change it once a year, but it's effectively a great marketing tool that'll be out there for 20 to 30 years for the business. I always pause when I say this, what I'm about to, when it comes to marketing and say schools and an opportunity to share to students that this is an alternative for the wind blade. Or, you know, there's certain schools that might be more STEM related and, mm -hmm. and they have products that are from upcycled, recycled uh, component products. I mean, that's an opportunity to, ed, we'll use educate as sure. opposed to market to students. Is that something that you're looking at? It's really, really, schools are a great place to put it. We, we use three words around here, inspire, imagine, and share. And, and that's really where Canvas came from was, was from the early days, just looking at a problem differently, not looking at how can we destroy this blade, but how can we use it? So we love the aspect of being out at schools and inspiring a young mind, not necessarily to come up with the next best idea for fiberglass blades. Um, we don't really want the competition, but um, what can they look at differently in problems that they're solving in school? Or, or STEM is a perfect example um, of, of how things can be done. We've had schools in the Cleveland area, and, and unfortunately, you know, it's going to be mostly local, but We've had them bring their engineering students through from high school and, and their business students to see how we tackled the problem. And the third aspect of it, a lot of our products that go out, we have a program called PAR where we don't paint the product with a finished color. It's just white primer. And we've had artists that come to our Cleveland facility. They take it on and they paint that product and make it their own from their vision or they can be shipped out like we're shipping products to Austin, Texas right now that are just the white primer. They have nine local artists that are gonna paint those and they'll be on Rainy Street in, in Austin for everyone to see. 
that opens it up to artists and and you have Cleveland artists that are now getting recognized all over the, mm. the country because yeah. they're painting our products, they're going out and they're putting it on their social media. And we can't wait to see what the artists in Austin do and broadcast that to everyone as well. Yeah, an individual touch to every product. Oh, I like that. And then yeah. showcasing it. Okay, you mentioned competition and other companies that are doing this, but let's go to the side of other locations then uh, for your product. What is, I, I think of benches that I have sat at in, in parks and go, this is chained to the ground. How heavy is this thing? And how easily uh, will it stay in place in the elements? Great question. Um, all of our products are made with feet that can be mounted to a concrete pad or, or even to a, a grass area. You can still mount them with, with uh, rods and things of that nature. But even our picnic table, I, I didn't realize really until we got pretty deep into this, how much furniture is stolen from public spaces, especially picnic tables and benches, or how much of it's just stacked up on top of each other at night by some kids. Um, our picnic benches weigh about 150 to 200 pounds. The table has to be at least 400 to 500 pounds. And some of our benches, the large circular ones are 2,000 pounds. Some of our benches are 600 to 900. So I'm always fond of saying if, if a couple of kids can pick that up and take it, more power to them. Um, they're not going anywhere, it in, ideally. But a lot of communities that get them are still just putting the bolts in to mount them down for for safety and and to keep them from from going away. So one of the things we do in, in terms of the materials we use, we want our product. Our product is the foundation of our brand. And, and it, so it revolves around the product. It revolves then around collaborations with artists, with collaborations with other sponsors and collaborations with families who want to create a legacy bench because those all create experiences and engagement. So we focused heavily on the product. We over-engineered it. The last thing you want is a, every time these land in a community, there's a PR event, there's local media, there's there's joy because they've never seen anything like it. And, and the calls we get are great and the sponsors are there and there's ribbon cutting or there's artists painting them. So the last thing we want is two months down the road to say, well, this broke already. And, and you know, th this isn't really as exciting as it seems. So we've spent a lot of time there. The fiberglass blades are retired, right? They, they had a job to produce energy they did it well, and then they came down. So that's the framework and foundation of our product. What we did was tie it in with other retired materials. So composite lumber is all made from recycled plastic, shrink wrap, bags, grocery bags, all sorts of stuff. And that will last, the, the fiberglass blade will last another 20 to 40 years out there. The composite lumber will last at least 20 years and is warranted that long. We use recycled rubber to make a bench. Tires that were on our cars and trucks now ground up and turned into a bench combined with shoes that are ground up by some of the biggest shoe manufacturers in the world from their plants and then also shoes that they collect back. So post-industrial, post-consumer, 
And then that board I mentioned that combines those floating islands of plastic being taken out of the ocean, the carpet industry waste because it's all mixed polymer, and then also municipal waste that can't be separated uh, any longer all goes into that. So we've picked materials that will last the test of time. The problem with a lot of benches and, and things that you see out there, you do have wood. Any retreated wood is going to wear down a lot faster than a composite lumber. And you have a lot of steel and iron being used in the construction, and you get a lot of rust and things of that nature. All of our material is put on aluminum frames, also high recycled content. And then steel st stainless steel fasteners are used to really make it stand the test of time. I'm just envisioning all of these ideas that you keep bringing up. Like, well, that could go there. Well, that would be a good spot there. What's one of the more you? What's the most unique place uh, you have a product, and what product is the most unique? Gosh, that's a good question. Um, I will say, when you work at Canvas and and being a part of this for for a little over a year now for myself, you look at the world differently. I mean, I, I go on a hike with my family and and they're enjoying the nature and everything, and I'm looking at the paths and. We could have a bench there. You could put a Deborah there, a, uh, a Faye over here. Um, we've seen a lot. Um, we, we shipped a lot of product down to Port Arthur, Texas. It is one community. They have a, a park called Pleasure Island that, that's a marina and it's on the water. And so a lot of our products, <clears throat> um, the willow especially, because we cut it from the apex of the blade, it's got sort of a wave shape to it. So it's really interesting to see them on a boardwalk or along a, a uh, shoreside where people are sitting looking at the water in a product that basically looks like the shape of a wave made from a retired wind turbine blade. You mentioned you had 40 at the offsite warehouse. How many blades are you going through a year? Um, we anticipate that we'll be able to upcycle probably somewhere between 1,300 and 1,700 blades per year. So, so caught about 1,500. And what is that of the number? What's the, where's that fit in the percentage of use in the U.S. that that we're retiring at any given point? The estimates over the last couple of years have been about five to eight thousand blades coming down. Um, on top of the fifteen hundred, we can upcycle because we need it for our own purpose. We can also probably um, process and grind another fifteen hundred blades. So. 3,000 out of the five to 8,000. What we're really anticipating now, though, is over the next five years, the IRA that was passed last year pumped a lot of money into renewable energy, solar, wind, battery. Um, so there are going to be a lot of projects upcoming. The estimates say it could be 10 to 15,000 blades a year for the next five years. So when I mentioned collaborations, we're also always collaborating with universities that are have been working on this problem. What else can we do with it? In our gallery, um, it, it's kind of funny how it worked out. When we built the gallery, we needed some demarcation, and so we made blade walls. So 16-foot tall sections of blade mounted to the ground to create it. We have one that uh, we actually created and brought in a local artist that painted the whole wall and made it a piece of art. And it was for our own purpose, but everyone that has come and visit visited the gallery has said, well, we would love a wall in our community. You know, you can make a mural. Every community has artists and every artist wants to paint something and they run out of space. So you could put up a wall. We are working with a, a group at University of Houston to see, could it be viable as a sound wall along a highway and, and bouncing it off each other and canceling out that sound. 
if we can explore opportunities like that, uh, you know, the products will always be our core. But, you know, if we can have special projects, call it, if you will, and, and things like walls and, and other things, you know, that would eat up all 10 to 15,000 blades. It doesn't take a lot of miles of highway to really make a dent in that. And, and that's really our goal is to responsibly handle as many of these blades coming down as we can. Because the pictures of the blades being buried in some field in Texas aren't good for any anyone. It's such a bad narrative. And, 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 you know, to an extent, there have been people that tried and failed and maybe were a little too ambitious and, and left piles. There, there's still one in Iowa. There's one in Texas. Um, the famous bulldozer of Casper, Wyoming, pushing dirt over them in the landfill. It's not a good story for an industry that's really trying to do the right thing. And, and that's where we wanted to come in and help. And because of our digital platform, a wind energy company that's sponsoring these products gets to be a part of the story. And they get to tell how you may have heard this about fiberglass blades, but do you know you're sitting on one right now combined with these other retired materials? And it does drive a good PR side of it that, that the industry needs. They needed a win on blades, and, and we're hoping that we're providing it to them. If the blade was headed for the landfill, does that mean that the input cost for you is lower? Because that product was, or is there, when someone sees there's value, all of a sudden they're pointing to their chin and not their forehead. <laughs> we've had, um, we, we've had a couple different ways we've gotten blades. Some, um, some of them have come at no charge to us. Some of them, depending on the urgency, we've been paid to take. Um, and, and that means a lot because it shows the industry supports that what, what we're doing. They know there's value in, in the end product, but they're also helping us as we get started, make sure we have the material we need to turn into product and make this as big a solution as we need to. Fascinating to see them. If So if you're on I-80 and you see uh, one already maybe split, there's a good chance it's headed to Ohio and That's soon right. to a public area near you. That's right. Ryan Donahue, I appreciate the time from Canvas and the insight and just fascinating to hear uh, the brains. I love it. Thank you, Brian. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. My thanks to Brian Donahue for his time from Canvas. If you have feedback for me or the podcast, send me an email, market at iowapbs.org. New episodes of this podcast come out each and every Tuesday, wherever you get audio, or you can watch us on YouTube and watch the video discussion as well. Bye-bye.